You see, this is an excellent example of what I'm talking about. If I was just going to give out lamentation status for every episode I considered bad or boring, well, honestly, that might be interesting to do someday. Kind of run through the list. Just divide all the episodes into, uh, let's say, four categories total. Best, worst, okay, not okay, right? And just kind of see how it lines up. That might be interesting to do someday. I like spreadsheets. What do you want from me? But this is not a lamentation. It's not a good episode. LeVar Burton directed this, and I can tell. But, well, we've got Burton directing. We've got Eric Avari absolutely wasted. And this goes back to an idea I've talked about several times. You could have some of the most talented people working on, you know, crap. And while it will be decently presented crap, it's still going to be crap. Um, see this episode for an example of that. Also, funny fact, Brennan Braga, uh, Brandon Braga, so I'm getting confused because I'm used to saying Berman and Braga. Brandon Braga actually flat out said that this is his least favorite episode of the first season. Uh, sure. <laughs> that being said, the cold open on this episode is pretty decent. Quick and efficient. There's a lost colony. We're going to check it out. Now, all of this lines up perfectly with what we've known so far. And as they exposit later, this still continues to make sense. This is a colony from over 70 years ago. Remember, last contact was 70 years ago, which means at an absolute bare minimum, this ship was sent out 79 years ago. And considering they had some time to set up and establish, it was honestly probably longer than that. So let's just ballpark it at about 80 years ago. Now, you might think, well, why didn't they ever look into it? Well, that's obvious, because they haven't really had ships fast enough to make the trip worthwhile, given the fact that they were threatened with actual violence if they decided to reach out. Now, that's actually kind of a key part, and one of the only parts of the script that's actually well-written. The fact that Terra Nova actually threatened violence. Now, I say that's well-written because it's actually incredibly stupid. But it's probably the best-written part of the episode. Maybe this should be a lamentation. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. The point is, we find out it's about 20 light-years away. Nine years there, nine years back, which is a completely unnecessary line, which means nothing. I hope you are used to that, because there's actually a lot of completely, um, what I have started calling empty text in my reviews. Empty text is when people say a lot of lines that don't mean anything. Worf actually has a wonderful quote about this, which I can't remember right now, over in TNG. You know, people talk much, say little. And I try very hard not to do that. Every episode I come up with something to make fun of myself for. Maybe I'm just, it's it's the time of year. You know how it is. You ever have that one month in the year where you just hate you know, your life and yourself and you just fight the depression every single day and you wake up and you're like, why do I need to get up today? Oh yeah, because I work today. Uh, yeah, I guess that's reason enough. That's where I'm at right now, so please forgive me. It's okay, I'm watching Enterprise. Ah! Okay, so... Nine years there, nine years back. There's a lot of empty text. Uh, I mentioned they wasted Eric Avari. I'm going to talk about that briefly because he is, uh, he's actually plays the role of the obstinate bureaucrat. That is his position in the narrative. He is here to disagree unilaterally. Even when shown overwhelming evidence to the contrary, he is the um, unhelpful one. 
the obstacle to social progress, the obstinate bureaucrat. He is the antagonist that needs to be overcome. Again, such a waste of a, of a pretty good actor. He was used very well over in Destiny, so I don't know what the hell they were thinking here. The problem is, if you're already paying attention, well, there's actually two major problems. And if you have a brain, you've already figured them out. Because congratulations, you thought about this episode more than the writers did. You'll notice once again, by the way, the issue is script. Not directing, not acting, not casting. Some visual effects issues, but it's a script issue. This is why I hammer the point of editors and writers so hard when it comes to television in general. Because, in my opinion, they are, they have the majority share of whether or not an episode is actually going to be good or not. This chunk of quality, uh, or lack of quality, is on them. A good writer can help cover for some other bad performances. I, I have seen episodes and movies which are actually interesting even though they're badly presented. But a well-presented piece of crap, well, that's just this episode, isn't it? I'll probably never think about this episode again. In fact, I guarantee I will never watch this episode again. So far, I've come across one episode in Enterprise Season 1 I ever planned to rewatch. Just the one. And even that one, it's, it's just interesting. And... I... Moving on. Moving on. So the writing has two huge flaws in it. These are not flaws of a technical nature. They're not flaws of a scientific nature. It's not like I am pointing out that they are bouncing the main particle beam off of the secondary deflector instead of the main deflector. No, the problem is they settled a colony, which by all accounts is a shanty town, which is literally smaller than my apartment complex. But okay, that makes sense. It's a first trip. It's a first attempt. And they turned the ship into the thing, right? It's a nine-year trip. Turn the ship into the thing, one, you know, okay, sure, sure, I'm with that, okay. Then, Earth is like, awesome, let's send another one. And they say, no, no, this is our colony. We don't want other people living here. That makes no sense on basically every level. The only defense I've ever heard anyone use against this is, oh, well, you know, people are stupid. Okay, I'll grant you that. First of all, we're supposed to believe that humans have evolved past territorial concerns, even at this point in history. Tucker even had a bit of a thing about that a few episodes ago. So why is that kind of a thing to begin with? Like, why is it an issue to have other people live nearby at ground zero? Then you add in the fact that they're a tiny shantytown on a planet. But let's ignore that for a moment. Maybe it's just a continent. Okay, okay. Um, I want you to imagine that you live in Prague which is the size of, uh, you know, a football field, okay? Tiny little town, because Prague is such a tiny little town. And let's say someone calls up and says, hey, we want to settle somewhere in Europe. And you say, no, no, I'm not willing to share my land with them. Okay, is that not ridiculous enough? Let me bring it down even further. I want you to imagine that you live in, um, God, I don't know. I'm trying to think of someplace in Europe, not in the States, to help out. You know, let's just use somewhere in the States. Um, let's say you live in Topeka, Kansas, okay? And you have this dinky little shanty town, and someone wants to land in Kansas City and live there, okay? Now, 
you can go ahead and Google this if you want, but as you'll see on the map, those look right next to each other. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, the trip between those two on the highway going full tilt is a little over an hour. A little over an hour's drive is quite a distance on foot, which is basically the tech level they'd have for traversing from point A to point B. They actually show a bicycle at one point. If you lived in Topeka or Kansas City, and the other person lived in the other, and if you decided not to reach out to each other on comm units, it is a roughly a 99 point infinite percent chance that you will never see the other person or even be aware that they're actually there. And that is like that on the world map. Probably closer to that, actually, but you probably can't see the distance between my two fingernails there. Which is exactly my point. Forgive me for belaboring this point, but I really feel perspective helps. Because anyone could tell you oh, planets are big, but I really want to make, the, make it clear that even if this was an asteroid, this would still be enough distance that you could have two settlements that would have nothing to do with each other. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is not addressed in the episode, but it is brought up. Why didn't anyone ask the Vulcans? Now, Tucker's answer to that is asking the Vulcans carries too high a price, which is another bit of empty text because it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't explain anything. What exactly do the Vulcans ask in return? Is it simply the absence of pride? I was under the impression that humans had only, within the last generation, begun really chafing under Vulcan limitations, because we're talking about events that happened 70, over, excuse me, 70 years ago. Um, also, if you were at the point where you have settled a colony and they are threatening violence upon contact, maybe that's the point at which you should go ahead and send a Vulcan ship. So the core premise of the episode has two gargantuan holes, about the size of a planet, actually. And that's not even a joke. One of the plot holes is literally the size of a planet. So you see why I'm looking at this episode like... <sighs> Meanwhile, in the, la uh, in the time between the last episodes and this one, someone... Uh, LeVar Burton, obviously, who's directing, he was like, you know what, this is stupid. And he sat down, he just tooled up the sensors on the Enterprise... And all of a sudden, the sensors of the Enterprise can detect things on the planet quite well, including the radiation levels and the cave structure. In fact, they can detect the caves so well, they can not only map it up, but have a real-time analysis of who's standing where, and specifically identify one specific human amongst the caves. Again, this is the kind of thing that wouldn't even make me bat an eyelash, you know, 200 years from now. But one of the points that they're making is the whole low-tone thing. And it's funny, because the last episode absolutely destroyed the low-tone thing, too. Huh. I hope this isn't a trend. So, Reed goes down, and the second Reed sees someone, he calls it in. And they also show the, a the aliens who have some dirt on their faces, which obviously makes it so that they're not human. I mean, they can't possibly be. Okay, I gotta be real. I don't even know why they tried to actually have makeup on these people. I really don't. Is that crystallization that's grown on their skin, or are they just dirty? Because it looks like they're just dirty. Granted, they were doing some outdoor shots, and that might be part of the problem, but one way or another, these look like people who have mud on their faces. 
Yes, I, I get the implication there. The set, now, the thing is, this is Star Trek, right? And as we will discuss over on TOS, which again, I have not covered yet, most of the aliens in TOS are humans. Literally no makeup whatsoever. In fact, this is something that would carry forward into Season 1 of TNG. There are quite a few you know, alien races they encountered which have no makeup whatsoever. They are just human beings who are from another planet and were born there and raised there. I know that we're supposed to kind of adjust that when it comes to Star Trek, and I'm willing to give TOS some, some credit there because, I mean, TOS was under the gun in every possible way, so the makeup department was certainly having issues. <laughs> and if I'm being honest, so was Season 1 TNG. But my point is, I, I still don't think even for a second that these guys looked alien. And that's coming from someone who has watched old Star Trek. So the fact that, to Paul's line, they're, they're not aliens, they're humans, it's even said in a pseudo-dramatic way, like it's a big reveal. On the plus side, they give that reveal very early, so I don't have too much. If they tried to say that to the end, that would actually piss me off. No, convincing us that they're humans is easy. It's convincing them that they're humans that becomes a plot point. So anyways, Reed uh, is competent, and then Reed is competent again. Someone approaches them with a gun, which is leveled at them and ready to fire. Reed then shoots that person on the spot. Now, allow me to say something odd, but that was absolutely the correct call there. Naturally, Reed is the one who gets injured and then captured, because why would you have someone who is competent actually continue to maintain that string of competency? No, we need Archer to get away for reasons I'll get into in a minute. So, Mer uh, Merriweather, god dang it, Travis Mayweather has a line that I actually really, really like. It's one of those one-line things Enterprise does every now and again that really gets me thinking. I don't get it. If they're humans, why would they attack us? I want you to think about that line. I really do. I want you to analyze the mentality, because he's kind of young. He's also a boomer, space boomer, but... Not what we call real-life boomers. God, that puts an interesting twist on things. But anyways, he is someone who doesn't really have a huge exposure to Earth culture or whatnot, but he does have a lot of exposure to space culture. And there's the sort of this automatic, you know, humans are pro-human thing going on, right? Archer even says that flat out later in the episode in a line that almost sounds like it should have been coming from Travis, not Archer. I'll get to that later. So... That, the implication of someone saying, I can't understand why they would attack us, we're the same species, is interesting on so many levels. It says a lot about how much humanity has changed over the last century. It says a lot about his mentality in particular. It also speaks, rather unfortunately, to the idea of human segregation. Not within, but without. Because you got the humans, you got the Vulcans, and they're connected to a couple other species thanks to the Vulcans. That's it. So humans tend to be very pro-human in the tribalistic sense. And I know what you're thinking. Well, of course they are. Lore, this is just tribalism. You, Lore, have talked against tribalism constantly in real-life discussions. And you're absolutely right. But tribalism came from a good place. Survival. You are part of the tribe, so you're safe. Ergo, if you're not part of the tribe, you might be a threat. And that changes the nature of how you interact with other people. You're more cautious, you're more hesitant, blah, blah, blah. Now, that only really applies in a survivalistic scenario. 
in a, anything substantially more complex than that, that breaks down entirely, which is why I tend to speak against tribalism, because I don't think someone who happens to like Enterprise, whereas I prefer DS9, is a good enough excuse to go full tribal on them. By the way, fresh reminder that if you like Enterprise, and I hope there are people of you who do like Enterprise who are watching this, I would love to hear your thoughts in the comments about the whys and the wherefores. I've shared before why I like several of the previous shows in terms of writing and directing and acting, and of course the chemistry and Voyager. So why do you like Enterprise? I, one of the things I, I still get to this day, uh, actually, I'd say about three days ago now, I got a comment on my rumination about the motion picture that said, I like this movie, and here's why. And they gave me a list of why. That was a treat to read, no joke. I love reading that stuff from you guys, so, by all means. So, humanity being the new kids on the block and not really knowing the galactic community, which barely exists at this point, being more tribal makes perfect sense. Humans are for humans, and we'll figure out the rest as we get into more complex situations, right? Finding alliances and determining who is an enemy and who is an ally, and dividing just about everyone up into those two categories is smart initially baseline you know starting point you know right so i'm kind of with that both from the we've gotten better and from the we're in a dangerous situation as a society as a species remember if broken bow had gone slightly differently and the vulcans had not diplomatically interceded there's a good chance that we would be currently being destroyed or in the middle of a guerrilla war against the klingons right about now this is also ignoring the fact that Archer interacted with the evil aliens a few episodes ago, who also would, would could have been severely damaging to the people back on Earth, right? For all those delicious fluids. So you get my point. All of this just from one line of dialogue. And I hope you enjoyed that, because it probably says the most in the whole episode. So they show their amazingly good scanners, which are actually even better. What happens next is probably actually the best scene of the whole episode. I don't know if it was intentional. See, Archer is right in this episode because he's Janeway. And Janeway would always make the right call even if there was no good reason to make it. And if called to task, she would usually say, oh, because I'm the captain or because this feels right or this is what we must do to follow our principles or whatever excuse they came up with that week. But Janeway was always right. This is part of the why I keep calling Archer Janeway. I, I've never noticed this connection before. Then again, I've only watched this, this part of the show once before. But he's written in the exact same voice Janeway was. Now I'm going to stop to talk about it for just a second. Not every writer... Let me rewind. If I wanted to explain something to someone, I would do so in my voice. What I mean by that is if you took the dialogue and put it on a page of paper and then you explained the same thing to someone and put that on a page of paper and you read them side by side, they would read differently. We have different sentence structure. We have different vocal patterns. We have different ways we discuss things. We have different vocabulary. Um, the way people talk is different. In other news, water is, in fact, wet. But I point this out because from a writing perspective, this is one of the greatest challenges of writing dialogue. Making your characters sound like they weren't written by the same person. Establishing that voice for each character is difficult. And a legitimate challenge. 
It's actually one of the reasons why several games, as well as shows and movies, will go out of their way to have different writers for each character. As in, the writing team writes the plot, but when it comes to the dialogue, Bob over there writes this character, or as Bobina writes this character, right? And thus, we actually get naturally different tones, because different writers are doing it. Now you see the problem here, because if you are not capable of doing that, or if you're trying to slot in a, a character in the similar type of a, as a previous you know, filling a similar narrative role, you might unintentionally be writing them in the same voice. This is my point overall. I guarantee you that if Kate Mulgrew were in this show and reading Captain Archer's lines, you couldn't tell the difference. Anyways... At least so far. I know that will change. Uh, I suspect that will change in Season 3 and Season 4. We'll see how far this goes as we go through it. I know I keep saying that, but again, I'm very unfamiliar with Season 1 and 2, so it's kind of new territory for me. This is funny, because TOS will be kind of new territory for me as well. I haven't rewatched some of the episodes of TOS in... God, like 20 years at this point. So, this brings me to the scene where Archer is right. Archer insists that they reach out to these people in order to help them. He does so against all logic, and despite the fact that he is constantly given alternatives which will solve the situation, and has no reason to think that his methods will succeed, oh, and also his approach to trying to convince them is nonsense. He doesn't try any kind of negotiation or diplomacy. Instead, he just kind of does this sort of frustrated thing, like, like, this should sound familiar. Imagine you've got a thing here, and you really want to convince someone else of this thing. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's an idea or a fact or a concept or uh, an angle, political ideal, a show you like. Maybe it's trying to convince someone how to play a game differently because you like watching streams. <laughs> you know? www.twitch.tv forward slash the lore runner. Anyways, <clears throat> and you just do this. You just shove it in their faces. Why aren't you paying attention to this? I've done this. I try not to. This is what Archer does, and funnily enough, this is not convincing. Not only because of the fact that his method is wrong, but he just keeps doing it over and over and over, even though it's already failed. There's this wonderful scene where he's in sickbay with, uh, with the mother and Eric Avari's character, and he's like, Listen, here's these pictures. They're of you, and you're human, and this is what you should do. And he's just he's just repeating the same points, which is funny. This is why I call this empty text, because their points are exactly the same, too. No, you're lying. Humans suck. You, you, we're never leaving. Go away. But all of this revolves around one scene, which you'll notice I haven't even talked about yet, because I really wanted to build up to this point. I am almost assuredly giving this episode too much credit, but I really like the scene where they're all in what is the equivalent of the meeting room, and they're looking at the scans, and as they're talking about the situation to Paul and Tucker and everyone else there, all gives... I don't remember if Tucker was there. I know Paul's there. They all talk through the situation, come up with a solution, and point out flaws in that solution, fix the flaws in that solution, and as they're discussing, they hammer out a plan of action. Archer then says, no! I was, I was actually in the middle of taking a note on my notes about how stupid Archer was until, and Bakula nails this line. There's the bit where he says, if I can't make first contact with a human, then I don't have any business being out here. 
And he does it like that. He chops off his own words because he's getting so choked up about saying them. And then the, just the, the self-loathing and the disgust and the anger and the rage all boil out in that second line. Then I don't have any business being out here. Once again, Archer is astonishingly in over his head and has no idea what he's doing at all. And I again, I hate to keep hammering this point, but that is probably the one thing that really salvages his character for me so far in season one, that he is so demonstrably amateur and failing. The only reason it doesn't work is he is always right, because he's Janeway. If, if they instead showed the consequence of his actions, if they showed that his constant bullish approach and his, his lack of experience was having negative consequences and things were going badly rather than well every episode, I would be substantially more in favor of this. It would be a darker show, but I'm okay with darker. As I've described before, and with regards to uh, Ghost of Tsushima, this came up. Dark doesn't mean violence, death, and depression, and sex. Dark just means consequential storytelling. Showing logical and correct consequence of storytelling, which may be the aforementioned things, but they are there because that's what should happen in the story, and they service the story. The story is not there to service them. The focus is different as opposed to trying to be more juvenile, which is what Enterprise will actually do later, and has already done, thank you very much, Decon Chamber. So imagine if in these first few episodes, Archer kept screwing up and things kept going badly. Relations are completely soured with the Klingon Empire, and the Vulcans are actively trying to deal with that, and the only reason they haven't failed is because the Suliban are actually still messing with the Klingons in other ways, which is destabilizing the houses, which is unintentionally saving the Federation. If future guy is actually Archer, that actually lines up pretty neatly. Then, consider this episode, where he successfully convinces them to relocate, because, hey, why not? Uh, instead, Imagine a situation in which he effectively fails to convince all of them to relocate. And if I'm being honest, I would probably just leave them here to die as a writer. But if, we, if that's a little bit too dark, maybe some of them listen. Maybe some are like, where, is this new, where are these new lands? Where can we go? And so Archer shows them, and they fly out there, and it's like, here. So some people will survive on Terra Nova, and, and the culture has a chance to continue thriving. There's a seed planted there, you know? I really like this scene, even though it's almost assuredly unintentional. So Archer then goes down, and Jammin, that's the guy played by Eric Avari, lets them go. Here, take your person and go. First of all, can I just say I'm surprised at how reasonable that is. But second of all, Archer then takes that and says, Okay, well now I have what I want. Wait, no I don't. I have to prove that I can do this and that I'm right. So he pushes. And this begins what I've already told you about him constantly pushing his narrative. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Um, you know, he, he, he constantly pushes this thing. Reed has better luck reaching out to people. Archer is frustrated. Um, they, the, the major plot point about the second colony comes up, which is stupid. The radiation poisoning and its seepage into the ground starts coming in, which makes sense. And the radiation not going away for another decade or two also makes sense. It's been about 70 years, so okay, yep. Um... They have this weirdly touching music that plays as the woman is shown a picture of herself as a child. 
This then leads to the second best scene in the episode, which this is an absolute failure of a scene, but it shouldn't have been. I find myself wondering if this was a scene that was written to be as heavy, not heavy-handed, but as heavy and as dark as it should have been, and instead was basically cut off at the knees by Rick Berman, who was involved in the writing of this episode. Like, no, 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 we can't do that on the network. We can't do that. See, what happens is Archer goes to rant it to Paul. Now, it does no, at no point does he say anything. He just starts ranting at her. It's like he just wanted a sounding board. To Paul, who is logical, says, okay, obviously he's ranting at me because he wants options. So she starts giving options. We can stun them and chain them up and evacuate them. This brings up the first excellent question here. Is it right to save people against their will? Now, Babylon 5 did a much better job of analyzing this exact same topic, but that is a very heavy topic, as I mentioned earlier, with a lot that can be said about it. They don't do anything with it here, but at least they bring up the topic. Again, like I said, the, the, the scene's kind of chopped off at the knees. So Archer flat out says, no, no, we have to convince them to leave. Because... At, at this point, let's be honest, this isn't about Archer, uh, excuse me, this isn't about the people, this is about Archer and his need to prove himself, right? Okay. Then, she pushes the cultural point. Are you sure this is the right thing to do? She asks the question I just asked. Is it right to force help on these people? And as she points out, we will be culturally destroying these people if we help them in this way. Another heavy topic, which is not analyzed at all. That, what I really like about how she brings that up is at one point she flat out says, you know, would you force them to live like humans? She doesn't say it that way, but she says, you know, would you force them to go to your schools and live in your son? And Archer says, yes, of course I would. It's their birthright. It's their humans. It's what they should be doing. Wow. I know that Archer is legitimately prejudiced, and that's a part of his character, but damn, dude. I wonder if Archer would join Cerberus. So he, you know, just kind of goes along with this. And it's not until she hammers him about this point that he comes up with the easy answer. This is why this episode has no balls, because the answer is easy. You remember that point I made earlier? You remember how long I talked about how big planets are? How big terrain is? Yeah, so their option is to take them to another continent. Even with an entire hemisphere having been hit by this, that leaves the other hemisphere. I know, shocking. So, gosh, since planets are big, maybe we should go down there. Now, this is already face-palming, but this is then followed by, and I'm just going to call it what it is, a pointless action sequence. Oh my god, you know, the ship falls in and it causes a cave-in. Now, okay, the reason this irritates me is because it's there in order to have an action sequence in the final act, have one last obstacle to overcome. I get that people want action in Star Trek, and you know what? So do I. I do. I like ship battles. I like tense moments. As I pointed out in a previous episode... Two crew members who were both out of their gourd pointing phasers at each other was awesome. There you go. Action sequence. Bam. You know? I'm down. I actually liked the overall CGI ridiculo fest that happened in DS9 in, uh... 
Sacrifice of Angels and or the Battle to the Strong or no no, no it wasn't or the Battle that's another episode. Um, Favor the Bold that's it. Favor the Bold. I like that. I'm with that. But if you're paying attention, all the action sequences I just mentioned had some weight and significance behind them rather than just oh now we have an action sequence. In fact, if you're paying attention, and I wouldn't blame you if you're not at this point in the episode, the shuttle lands, shakes a bit, and then, oh, the thrusters are offline. What? No damage. The, sh- the shuttle hasn't fallen in yet. And nothing's happened. It's just the thrusters are offline. And that causes all of the problems. The fact that the ship inexplicably breaks for no reason out of nowhere, just so they could fall into the cavern. Then they have the thing where they have to save the guy. And that leads to a scene which, okay, I'll, I'll give you this. It, it's kind of cliche, but cliches aren't necessarily bad. There's the bit where Archer has to swing up and grab his arm and trust him. And then the other guy has to trust him in giving him his face pistol. I'm, 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 I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. So uh, then, then they convince them and they move them to the southern county, blah, 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 at the end. Wait, there's one last thing I want to talk about, and that is Travis. I myself have joked that Mayweather is one of those non-characters. You know what I'm talking about. A character is mostly in the background and doesn't really get enough episodes to themselves to really flesh them out as a character, so they're just kind of there. They're in almost every episode, but almost always in the background just saying whatever. I have a feeling Uhura will fall into this category when it comes to TOS. I hope not, because I actually like Nichelle Nichols. But the point being, you could probably name several characters across all Star Trek shows that fall into that slot of the person who's just kind of there and doesn't really do much. This is actually one of um, Denise Crosby's big complaints about playing Tasha Yar, so she didn't have anything to do. And honestly, this is something they did to Gates McFadden. And Marina Sirtis over on TNG. So, Travis, by memory, is one of those characters. You know, the, the ill-appreciated, ill-utilized. There's, a, there's the occasional moment of greatness, you know. Maybe. I say maybe, because, like, Harry Kim has, like, two of my favorite episodes in Voyager are actually Kim-centric episodes. Uh, I can't remember the name of the one. One is where it's future Kim and the ice thing and sending them back. That was I love that episode. Um, there's also the Herogen, uh Nazi Germany episode, which is a two-parter. And yeah, I like it. Killing Game, I believe. Both both Harry Kim uh, significant episodes. For, and, and I know why that's funny to say that. But I don't remember any good Mayweather episodes. Now, what am I getting to here? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? This should have been an episode about him. At the beginning of the episode, he's the one all interested in this. And at several points, he has key lines of dialogue that show that he has the mentality that is necessary for, of course I'm going to help you, why wouldn't I? Archer's here trying to prove something. And sure, that's part of his character, probably unintentionally, but Mayweather could have actually been the point man here. He could have been the one to reach out. He could have been the one to trust. He could have been the one to bridge the gap here to finally be the actual olive branch that succeeds in reaching out to these people and convincing them. And it could have been all about him and his frustration and lack of understanding. I don't understand why. Like, you're colonists. And I've, you're, of course I'm going to help you out. Why wouldn't I? We're humans. Remember, going back to that line I spent so much time on earlier. And his confusion and uncertainty and 
maybe having a bit of a character moment where he's sitting there just not understanding, and Mr. Avari, who again is a great character actor, comes over, and maybe the two have a bit of a moment where they're talking, and they connect a little bit as Travis just expresses his simple lack of understanding. I don't, I don't get it. And maybe uh, what's his name, Jammin? I think I don't actually remember. I wrote it down somewhere. Um, Jammin, yeah, it is Jammin. That's Eric Avari's character. Jammin says, you know, you you've never experienced what we have. We grow up hearing stories about how you murdered us. Have you never faced that kind of overwhelming foe, that implacable enemy? You're the boogeyman. And Travis is like, I'm 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 just an ensign. I'm just here to. And, of course, this could then be part of a sub-character plot for Travis over future episodes, as he comes to understand that space is not as innocent and as pure as he is, that he is a legitimately good person, and now he is having to interact with and deal with the society, that is to say, a galaxy, that does not always allow him to be that good of a person. I'm not saying we should break him down. Quite the contrary. I'm saying he needs to find a way to be good when he is not in paradise. I think that would be awesome. Instead, we got this. You'll notice the episode even ends with him. Him talking about this episode as if he was a major character in it. And him talking about how he's going to be the one to send the report home and how he's so excited to crack open this. He's even at the dinner with the other three, which usually is kind of a special occasion sort of a thing, as if he had been in the episode the whole time. I legitimately suspect that this was originally a Travis vehicle, and instead it was redirected to Archer for whatever reason. Whatever. I hope you've enjoyed. I always do. I'll see you next time, guys. Cool.